Amen. Uh, I'm grateful for Mo and for all his passion. Uh, I'm intimidated by it as well because I believe, I believe the same things that he does, and I feel just as strongly, uh, but it doesn't come out. I've had two cups of coffee this morning to try to match his passion because I knew that he would be leading. So, uh, Mo, thank you uh, for the way that you lead us and uh, just for how your passion and your heart for the Lord exudes. Um, For those of y'all that don't know me, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And like Mo said, we're getting ready to start a brand new series. Um, And the series is called Pray. Um, Just so, all right, yeah, uh, let's clap. All right. Um, Just so that at the end of each, uh, at the end of each of these next three weeks, I don't want anybody to be confused as to what the application is, right? We're trying to go through this so that we would be convinced that, man, at the end of this time, we, we really hope that God would, would do three things. That one, um, that we would pray more, that the goal is that you would pray more. Two, the goal is that our church would be full of more prayer. Um, and three is that our church would be full of more meaningful prayer. Um, if listening to sermons on prayer uh, makes you feel like a failure, uh, writing and preaching them makes you feel like a hypocrite. Um, so I just want you to know as I come up here, I don't come as one that feels like, like I have it all together. It is a, um, one of the great gifts of being a pastor uh, is that you're constantly forced to go to God's word and preach about truths that you yourself haven't fully lived up to. Um, and so if we ever preach and set a bar that we ourselves have lived up to, then we aren't preaching high enough. So we want to preach, and where there's this gap, we want to praise our God that Jesus Christ has filled that gap for us, and that he has promised us that we can stand on his shoulders to reach that mark um, that God has laid out for us. So let's pray, and let's dive into God's word. Father, we come to you right now, and we ask um, that you would remove the guilt or the intimidation that comes from prayer, and you would remind us that it's a gift, Lord. Help us to utilize the gift that you've provided uh, for all of us that are in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so about two years ago, right when the church started, um, I started to see a counselor for what I would find out was depression. Uh, my brother had died. The church launched. Things were harder than I thought that it would be. And in those first few months, I just felt uh, myself not as myself, right? So I was somebody that grew up my whole life, just this raging optimist, feeling like it's all going to work out. Things are going to be just fine. I smiled all the time. I laughed and made jokes. And in those months, I found out that everything that I knew about myself that I could rely on wasn't there anymore, Um I didn't smile. Uh, I didn't think anything would be okay. I thought that the world was going to crash and burn any day now. And everything that I tried to do to make myself be myself um, didn't work. And so I start to see a counselor. um, And as we talk, he gives me two things. He gives me a diagnosis. He sits down and he says, hey, John, as I've heard about what took place or what's going on, um, he's like, I don't think it's a thing that you can just get yourself out of. He says, I think you're depressed. Um, And he didn't just give me a diagnosis. He gave me a prescription. These are the things that you should do. There's these herbs that you you can take, uh, legal herbs that are legal in all 50 (laughs) states, right? Um, There are these things that you can go and take. um, And melatonin, there are these um, yeah, pills. It's not going to cure you. This will help you to sleep at night so that you can get your REM sleep and start to feel like yourself so that you can get back and dive into God's word and enjoy all of those things. And um, for the first time in months, I left with a smile on my face. What changed? Nothing. Everything in my life was exactly the same. But what he gave me was a prescription. And what a prescription does is it doesn't change anything that goes on in your life. 
it's not even the medicine itself. It's just the bridge that gets you to what it is that you need to take. So a, a prescription helps you by providing hope. And so I walked out with that thing in my hand, and I was hopeful. Prescriptions are needed at times when you and I find ourselves facing problems that we can't face on our own. We need some kind of outside help. Um, and prescriptions are only useful if you have the right one, right? Um, Richard, uh, that same year, tore his Achilles, and he went to a doctor, and the first doctor that he went to told him that it was a, a sprain. Um, and so he walked around for a week, and it's like, ah, I got worse because Tylenol doesn't fix an Achilles, right? Um, if you have the wrong one, things get worse. But here's what takes place. If you have the right prescription, things will get better eventually. You have help, but your help is not immediate. It will get better, just not right now. But what you do have immediately and instantly is hope. And so as we start off these next few weeks and talk about prayer, I want you to know I wholeheartedly believe prayer changes things. But prayer changes things like a prescription does. Prayer is, in fact, God's prescription for life in a fallen world. Prayer is God's prescription for life in a fallen world. We're going to get to Psalm 13, so you can turn there, but I do want to set a little bit of context, and here's the context that I'm going to set. There's certain psalms that you can go to, and it helps to know the details of the circumstances that led the psalmist to write that psalm. So in Psalm 51, David, as king, as somebody that has professed to be God's son, um, has just had an affair with somebody that was not his wife, and he had arranged things so that her husband would be killed so that he could take her. He thought that he could keep that sin on the inside. God sends somebody to confront him of his sin. He's broken, and in his repentance, he pens Psalm 51. That helps us to get the backdrop of Psalm 51, what he means when he talks about his sin. Psalm 13, we don't know the specific uh, circumstances that led him to write this psalm, but the beauty is that we don't have to because anybody that reads this psalm and has ever prayed at any point says, I don't need to know what went on in his life. I know what's brought me to this place. And here's what I'm going to say. Prayer is God's prescription for a fallen world. There's a guy by the name of Gary Miller, and he wrote this book, Calling on the Name of the Lord, that just kind of lays out this biblical theology of prayer. And all that that means is you take the Bible from start to end and you review every instance of prayer and what's the thread that runs in between it. And what he says is this, is that prayer is basically calling on God to fulfill the promises that he's already made. He gets this by starting at the beginning. God creates the world. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. God confronts them. And what you and I see is that although prayer is necessary for us, it's unnatural. Instead of Adam and Eve admitting their weakness, they make an excuse as to why they sin. Instead of them pleading to God for his help, they blame somebody else to get the blame off of them. And in the midst of all that, God comes through and in Genesis 3.15 makes a promise that God will set all things right. Genesis 4 starts off uh, with Eve. She has a son named Cain. In the first verse, what she says is this. I praise God, or we're going to call him Cain, because she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She sees Cain, her son, as the fulfillment of the promise that God said that he would send a seed into the world to make things right. So she's like, God's done it. And then Cain goes on a picnic with his brother and comes back with bloody hands, and they say, maybe this isn't the, the one that God had to set things right. Genesis 4 goes on, and you see the line of Cain, and you see that even as technology and 
advancements in the world start to increase, society goes down until the last descendant that we see from Cain is this guy that brags about how many people that he's killed. And so you have this world saying, we've been waiting on God to fulfill his promise. And Cain didn't do it. And everybody else that came from him didn't do it. And uh, Genesis 4, 25 and 26, it's going to be here on the screen. It starts off and it says this. Adam was intimate with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Look look at this. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. And then it says this. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Most people, when you ask them, what's prayer, they'll say, talking to God. And in a sense, that's broadly true. But the Bible seems to distinguish calling on the name of the Lord uh, from what Adam and Eve just did as they talked to, to God. And you go throughout the rest of the Bible and where you see this calling on the name of the Lord, it always has to do with people pleading on God to do what he said that he would do. Romans 10, everybody that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And throughout the scriptures, you have people calling on God to do that which he says that he would do. And I think that that helps us to set at least the baseline of the trajectory of what it is that we mean by prayer. We're calling on God to do what he said that he would do. Prayer is not us coming up with an idea and demanding God to do what we want. Prayer is merely you and I praying back to God the promises that he's already laid out. That's our great confidence in prayer, that God, I'm only asking you to do what you promised that you would do. When we call on the name of the Lord, we're basically calling on the nature of God. It's not just saying his name out loud, but it's what you think of when somebody says, I called 911. If somebody says, I called 911, you don't say, ah, well, what did you all talk about? What was the nature of your conversation? You assume that when they say, I called them, that they called, they cried out for help. And it's the same thing for those of us that call on the name of the Lord. So Psalm 13. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. Psalm 13. And as I read it, just, just sit back and ask yourself, could I have written this? Does the backdrop of my life lend itself to this? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Has anybody felt like that? Consider me and answer me, Lord. It's not enough for me to just repeat things in my head about you. I want you to talk to me. Restore brightness to my eyes or else I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Prayer is calling on God to do that which he said that he would promise. Prayer is God's prescription for us for life in a broken world. So my main point is this prayer like any other prescription removes our concerns before it repairs our circumstances. This is what prayer does. It lifts us and it frees us of the concerns and the cares that we have before it fixes what's wrong. This is God's promise to us in prayer. Prayer is made up of at least three things, and we're going to talk through all three as we work through the Psalms. If you're trying to take notes, three points. Desperation desire, and deliverance. 
desperation, desire, and deliverance. Let's talk through desperation first. Psalm uh, 13, 1 and 2. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind daily? How long will my enemy dominate over, over me? Here's the thing about the desperation that comes in prayer, especially as we're praying for God to do that which he said that he would do. Prayer, or, or this desperation, is made up of at least three things. The three things are, things shouldn't be this way. Have any of y'all in the lives that you have right now feel like there's something that goes on in my life right now and things shouldn't be this way? All right, okay. It was a rhetorical question, but thank you. Um, I knew that you'd say yes. Two, things shouldn't be this way. Two, God should have done, God should do something about this. It's not just that things are bad, but it's that God should do something about this. And three, God should have done something about this already. Why is he waiting? This is what he says right here. This is source of his desperation, and you feel it, right? In those first four verses, or, or the first two verses, uh, what he says four times is, how long? How long? How long? You only ask how long if you're expecting somebody to do something for you. You don't call somebody and say, hey, how long is it going to be until you get here if they've never said that they're going to pick you up? There's this expectation that God would have done something about the frustration that he faces, and he says, how long? And that's what desperation does, right? It makes life feel long. Right? Time flies when things are, are good, but it seems like time forgets how to work when you're at a job that you hate, when you're in a relationship that's frustrating, when you're dealing with infertility, when you're waiting for an adoption, when you're waiting on a spouse. Time feels like it takes so long. And so he starts here like all of us, saying, God, how long? How long until you fix all this stuff? I'm tired of waiting the way that I am. And not just how long, but what desperation does is it affects how you and I view everything and everyone. Right in verse 1 and 2, he talks about God, talks about himself, and he talks about his opposition. First, first of all, God, how long, Lord? And look at the words that he says. Will you forget me for ever? How long will you hide your face from me? Theologically, we know that it's true that God doesn't forget anything or anyone, right? We know it's impossible for God to forget because he knows all. We know that to be true, but the beauty of poetry is that it's not just meant to communicate things factually and tight. It's meant to communicate feelings, and how he feels is that I'm frustrated because a God that shouldn't forget anything, anywhere, seems to have forgotten me. How many of y'all have felt that? And it's easy to feel that God forgets, not just he forgets things, but the hard thing is that it, it feels like God forgets not just us, but me, especially as we look and compare ourselves to everybody else's life. And what we do is we don't compare ourselves to one person. We compare ourselves to everybody. And we take the most idealized portions of everybody's life and put it as one life, and we compare ourselves to that, and that comparison becomes the tidal wave against which any hope that you have will sink. But this is the desperation that he feels, that God has forgotten him, that practically there's no help for him. It's what a baby feels like. When you put him down to go to sleep and you turn off the lights and you leave, that they feel like that just because you hid your face that you have a forgetful heart. When was the last time that you were this frank 
and honest with God and said, God, I feel like you've forgotten me. Prayer starts with this desperation. Here's what takes place, though. When we don't pray and admit this to to God, we spend our time trying to be the apple of somebody else's eyes. We spend our time trying to fill this feeling of somebody knows me and cares for me by trying to get that from everybody else instead of just sitting here like him and admitting, God, I feel like you've forgotten me. How long? He looks at himself as well. When when we feel like God has forgotten us, here's what we do with all the concerns that he told us to give us. If we feel like God has forgotten us, what we say in our hearts to God is, well, God, forget you, and I'm just going to take all my concerns on myself. Look here at verse 2. How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind daily? When we feel like God has forgotten us, it makes it incredibly hard for us to cry out to him and to give him our problems. Let me state it this way. Prayerlessness, not giving God our problems, is a clear sign that you may feel on the inside that he's forgotten you. And here's what I want you to know. You are like a house without a a garage or a car without a trunk. You were never meant to store any of your concerns. You were meant to transport those things elsewhere, but you just don't have the room to store all of these concerns within you. The more that you do that, the more you become a hoarder, and expose yourself to discomfort that you never should have had. Hear what J.C. Ryle says uh, about this. He says this, the only way to be really happy in such a world as this is to ever be casting all our cares on God. It is trying to carry their own burdens, which so often makes believers sad. If they will tell their troubles to God, he will enable them to bear as easily as Samson did the gates of Gaza. If they are resolved to keep them to themselves, they will one day find that the very grasshopper is a burden. And so so he's saying is the frustration that you and I tend to feel in this life is because you and I want to hold our concerns instead of casting them to God. I remember when I was in school uh, and high school. My house was about a mile from my uh, home, and um, I'd wait on my dad to come and pick me up. I'd wait on my mom to come and pick me up, and sometimes they wouldn't show up, and I'd get so frustrated that with all my books in my bag, I'd walk home, and by the time I got home, you know, I'd huff and puff, and I'm just angry, and I'm mad, and it's like right about the time that I get home, they pulled up. And they said, hey, I went to the school to pick you up. And then I came back and I said, I got tired of waiting. So I did it myself. It's your fault that I'm mad. And what they said, it's not our fault. It's, it was your insistence on carrying your book bag in your time that made you mad. We had a car. We had the resources and the tools to carry your burden if you would have just offloaded them to us and waited, you wouldn't feel the discomfort that you do right now. What do you feel like is the cause of your concern? Is your singleness the cause of your concern? And the humiliation that you feel like you carry with that when everybody else around you is getting married and you aren't, and are you trying to carry up those concerns on yourself? What about your marriage or your job or your lack thereof? What about the weight of the racial tension that exists in the world and what to do about that? All of those concerns that we pile on ourselves and store with 
in us. It leads us to a desperation, but that desperation is meant for you and I to cry out. And here's what I want you to know. And I feel compelled to say this, not just because of the age of our church, but I've seen it uh, across all age ranges. Um, Twitter, Facebook, and social media, um, it seems like it's a vent, a place where I can go and cast off my concerns, but it is not that. It's storing your concerns on your timeline online. You haven't cast them off because if you really casted them off, then you would write it and leave it and you wouldn't pay attention to the likes or dislikes or what folks say about it. But the problem is we write it and we don't leave it and we continue to come back to it. It makes us angry and more and more mad. And what we find out is that it's not a vent. It's an intake. And now I'm storing all of these concerns, and it seems like the more that I'm on, the more anxious that I am. John Piper, what he he said about this, is one of the great uses of social media on the last day um, is to show all of us that our prayerlessness was not due to a lack of time. small brief word of application you may just need to get off for some time and replace that time with prayer casting off your anxious concerns to the Lord if you're convinced that I can't get off and you have a reason why you can't then don't trust your own reason find somebody else who you consider reasonable and tell them your reason And see if they don't say, "Uh, I think that's an excuse. There's this desperation that he feels. And all of this to say, he doesn't keep this within himself. This is a prayer to God. It is addressed to God. Lord, how long? You and I were never meant to look inside of ourselves or to store our own concerns You and I were meant to give our concerns to somebody else to look for peace outside of ourselves. Listen, you're never bothering God the way that you bother somebody else when you give your concerns to the Lord. And I know that we all know that, but the question is, do you actually believe that? Do you believe that nothing is too trivial or small to put into God's hand? We talk about God's power and that he has these big hands. And his big hands are useful for more than just taking care of big problems. His big hands means that he can carry a bunch of small problems. You know how when you go to the store and get groceries from the store, how you'll No, you'll fight tooth and nail to make sure every finger has a bag in it because the worst thing in the world is that you would have to make more than than one trip. Um, I want you to know that God's hands are big, that he can constantly unload the grocery car full of your troubles with one trip. You can make as many trips as you want to, but you don't have to that you can really sit down and unload all of your anxieties and concerns to the Lord. This is where prayer begins with with desperation. God can handle it all. And the question that I have is this, how often have you done that? How often has prayer been just that? An extended time with God, not trying to rush through, not the first thing that I do, in the shower before I have to go to work, work, but just this time where the anxieties of my life, I sit down and I call them all out specifically by name. And I don't get up until I've unburdened myself. This is what God invites you and I to do with our desperation. Verse 3 and 4, here's where prayer leads to. It starts with a desperation But then what's next is a desire. 
And I use that word intentionally because that's what we do when we pray. Um, We do not name it and claim it and demand anything from God. We can't. Prayer in and of itself is saying, I'm weak and I need your help. God is strong, which means this. You and I are too weak to twist his arms to do anything. When we pray, it's you and I asking God what it is that we'll do. Here's how you can tell if something is a desire or a demand. If you use the phrase or else, what comes after that phrase? Is it a threat? God, I need you to do this or else I'm not going to be faithful. I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to try to find it myself. Or God, I need you to do this or else I'm done for. Look, 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 look here at verse 3. It says this. Consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes. What he's saying is this. God, basically, give me night vision. Like a baby that is in a room and you turn off the lights and they can't see the face of their mom or dad. What takes place is They could be crying and screaming their head off until you walk in that room and turn the lights on. And then they're like, oh, I I really didn't need anything. Um, I just wanted to make sure that you were still there. What he's saying is, God, my request is that you restore brightness to my eyes. If I'm going to be in the dark about when you are going to do what it is that you're going to do, I at least want to be able to see your face. That if I see your face, that my heart will brighten. Look, God... Restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, or else, he's not trying to hold God hostage, but he's saying, or else, I have no hope. I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. What he's saying here is God, What I desire more than anything else is your intervention. If you don't help, I'm ruined. If you do help, I'll have a cause to rejoice, but there is no middle ground. Prayer is like taking off the blindfold when you're in the midst of a war zone. Prayer helps to expose us that there's only two outcomes for all of us. Either we will rejoice or we will be ruined, but nobody by the strength of the hands will be just fine. And so what he's saying here is, God, I need your help. That if you help me, I'll rejoice. My face will light up. But if you don't, I'll be ruined and the enemies of my joy will conquer me. Um, One of the biggest realities of being a father uh, that that I've learned is that, um, so right now I live with my wife and my daughter, two women that are in my house that uh, at times uh, make a request of me, right? Um, In the middle of the night, if my wife calls out to me and says, hey, John, can you get me something to drink? Um, You know, then on my good days when I'm Christ-like, I'll say, absolutely, sweetheart, and I'll run and I'll grab her uh, water and I'll come back and I'll give it to her. On days that I may be mad or upset, um, I may pretend like I'm asleep because it's like, if I don't help you, It's an inconvenience, but you'll be just fine. (laughs) When my daughter cries out in her room, um, I don't pretend that I'm asleep when my wife is is not there. When she's there, there's times that I pretend that I'm asleep, so I shouldn't. (laughs) When she's not there and it's just up to me, Regardless of how I feel about her, um, I don't make the assumption that she'll be just fine because she can't get up and get it herself. 
So if I don't come to her aid, she'll be ruined. As David is penning this psalm, what he's saying is, Lord, I am not the independent person that can get up and get the water myself. I'm the infant, the child that will be absolutely ruined unless you come and help me. This is where prayer starts, and this is what makes it true and applicable for everybody here in this room. If you're here and you're not a Christian, Christianity begins with us hearing about God's promise to save us from our sins in Christ, and you and I calling out to God and saying, Lord, if you don't save me, I'll be ruined. Lord, I'm crying out because I know that I can't live the life that you've called me to live. I know that I can't meet the standard that you're going to judge me on. So unless what you actually said about Jesus dying on the cross for my sin and defeating the enemy of all of our souls, unless that's true, I'm ruined. But if it's true, then I'll have cause to rejoice. If you're not a Christian here today, I want you to know that a prayer to to God doesn't begin with, God, just give me one more chance to get things right. It begins with, God, if you don't help me and save me from my sins, I'm ruined. But it's not just true for the person that's not a Christian. It's true for the Christian that's tired and burdened and frustrated. It's saying, Lord... I don't just need you to give me strength to help me endure. I need you to be my very strength. I need you to help me, Lord. If you don't keep me, if your promises aren't true that everybody that you saved, you'll keep, I'd lose it. God, I need you to help me and sustain me. Prayer begins for everybody with a desire that God would intervene. And if he doesn't, I would be done for. Is prayer like this your first option or is it your last resort? We know this to be true and we pray by the grace of God that we would apply it as we find ourselves face to face with any burden. Yes, desperation the desperation that we feel in our lives should be the starting point for you and I to pray. But even if we don't feel it, even if we aren't at our wits end, even if our life isn't completely falling apart right now, it could with one decision. And so daily, you and I have the privilege of crying out and reaffirming to God, God, what I desire most of all is not just that you would fix my circumstances, but that you would free me from the concerns that I have, whether it's your first option or your last resort. I want you to know that God hears the prayers because of what Christ has done for us, just the the same. If you're far from God, you can cry out to him to intervene, and he will. He'll save you from the penalty of your sins, from the hopelessness that you feel right now. But he may remove your concerns long before he repairs your problem. Here's where it ends. It starts with a desperation. It moves on to a desire for God to come and help. And lastly, it ends with deliverance. Um, And I want us to think carefully about how we think of that word. Verse 5 says this, But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Here's the thing about using the word deliverance. When that word is used, you and I primarily think about circumstances. We think of a slave being set free from his chains. You know, we think of the Shawshank redemption when he gets out. We think of the stories that we hear in the Bible of demonic oppression and somebody being delivered right there on the spot where the reality of their lives reflects the declaration that God has made. Right here, notice verse 5 begins with this one word, 
That one word is but. It's a contrast. That what but does, what it has the power to do, is it has the power to change your disposition, not with a circumstance, but with a declaration. Think of in middle school, right, when you talk to the guy or girl that you had a crush on and you shared that you liked them, and they said, I like you too, and you smile, and then they say, but. And that smile quickly turns into a frown because you know that what comes after that but uh, seems like it's going to be in opposition to what came before. That word but has the ability to change a smile to a frown, but the good news of this psalm is that that but can do the same thing in reverse. It can change a frown to a smile, and what we see here is somebody praying, and he starts off in lamenting, crying out in desperation, but listen to these words, but look, I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. And you have to ask yourself, what changed? Does he feel in his heart that his enemy is any more victorious? Does he feel in his heart that he's stronger? Has all of the circumstances that caused him to start writing this song, has that changed? No. Hear what he says here, but I have trusted in your faithful love. What he's doing is he's putting his hope in God's past action. I've trusted. I've looked at what you've done, and I've seen that you've constantly said that you would do what you would do. God, I look back at my life, and I see that before I even communicated the problems that I felt in my heart, you already made provisions to deal with the things that caused me to have the pain and the hopelessness that I do. Before you could speak words and cry out and ask God to forgive you of your sins, God had already put his son to death on on the cross. God's love for you is not something that's reactive. It's proactive. And so he starts off this psalm praying, God, when? When will you? When with you? When? And he's concerned about the timing that God would do things in. But he ends off and he realizes that when isn't the most important question to ask. The most important question to ask is not when will you, but will you? And if you will, and I can trust in your word, then I know that I can hold on to your promises. And holding on to to the promises of God is something that's very tangible, and that's what you and I do when we pray. I remember this story that I heard of Michael Irvin, the Cowboys wide receiver, and he talked about the first guaranteed contract that he got. The contract was for $22 million, um, and they asked him, how do you want that? Do you want us to spread it out and pay you, or do you want it at, in one lump sum? And what he says, I want it in one lump sum. And so he talks uh, uh, about, he walks over to his locker, he looks down, and there is a check for $22 million signed by the owner. He picked up that check, and as he held it in his hands, do you know what he said? I'm rich. Do you know what he didn't have? The actual bags of money. Do you know what he had? A promise. That's all that a check is. It's a promissory note. It is a note that somebody writes that says, I will pay this amount to this person 
and I'm going to write my name down there, and I'm going to sign it so that if they have this, they can take it to the bank, and it's good. So he can legitimately say, I'm rich, even though he does not yet have the bags of money. I want you to know that the promises of God work just like that. The most important thing on a check is not the date in the top right-hand corner. The most important thing on the check is the signature that's at the bottom. If you have a check and the date is written in the top and the amount's written in the top, but nobody signs it, it does you no good. If I bring out my checkbook and I write you a check for $22 million and I put a date in the top and I give it to you, you are not saying, John, Thank you, I'm rich. What you're saying is, this is no good. Even if you put your name down on it, it would be no good. I would (laughs) have nothing to hold on to. In God's wisdom, here's what he's done. He's written to all of us a check that will pay the full debt of all of our sins and will ensure that you and I get to enjoy a richness with God, not just in this life, but in the life to come. He signed the bottom of that check and he said, I'm going to come back later and fill in the date. You and I can obsess over how long will you, when you, how long, how long, But what he's saying is that's not the most important thing. If you trust the name that's signed at the bottom, then you can trust that I won't only pay this check, but I will come in and fulfill the promise. God doesn't bounce checks. God doesn't float checks. And the promise that he made to us in Christ is the most important promise, but it is also the basis to which you and I can trust him. If he's willing to give up his own son, like Paul says, how much more can we trust that he'll he'll take care of everything else that we need? This is what we take hold of when we pray. So what I want to do as we close is I want to exhort us to do one thing, and I'll give you four quick ways in less than two minutes about how that we can do that, and that's this. Letting go of our problems is the only way to take hold of God's promises. Your arms aren't big enough. There are too many problems, and God has too many promises. You have to choose what you're going to use your hands to hold on to. If you take hold of your problems, you will not pray because you'll spend your time trying to fix those things on your own. But if you'll take hold of the promises of God, then what he says is offload your problems to me and take hold of the promises that I have. And here's four ways that we can do it. One is this, take the problems to God first. Um, It's easy for us as we kind of sit and talk and offload our bad days or things that go wrong with our spouse, with our friends, with folks that are a part of our church, to be very quick, explicit, Um, and comprehensive in the way that we share our problems with people and on social media and to be very generic with the way that we share them to, to, to God. So my challenge is in this next week, if you find yourself in a conversation with somebody and they say the words, what's wrong, that you wouldn't respond with what's wrong, uh, but that you would respond with hold on. And you would take it to God first and you would pray. And then after you offload them to him, that you would bring them back. So give them to God first. Two, uh, name the specific problem, right? Um, don't, Don't speak in generalities to God. God is never in a rush. He has all the time in the world. Uh, But I do want you to know this requires a humility Um, And sometimes it's embarrassing, not just to share it with God, but to share it with people um, who you know will pray for you. And the beauty of sharing your weaknesses 
with other people um, is that embarrassment, humility, and weakness is the currency that purchases friendship. If you are strong and invincible, you may be admired, uh, but you will never have deep friendships. If you are weak and apparent with those and you share those, then what you'll find out is that you'll constantly be surrounded with people that say, me too. It's humiliating at times. It is embarrassing, but it's the currency that buys true friendship. Three, which is an offshoot of two, bring people into your weakness. You'll find that Psalms 13 is a prayer that everyone has prayed, regardless of if they've read this or not. At least verses one or two. And four, carve out specific time to do this daily. Prayer is one of those things that because we know that we can do it whenever, um, it causes us to treat it with contempt. And we always say, I'll do this later because we think that we can do it later, but what we quickly find out is that later never comes. So one of the ways that we can treat prayer as a commodity is to carve out a specific time daily and say, I'm going to guard this with my life because it is my very life. Nobody has all that they need when they think that they need it, but you and I have a promise from a God that is going to great lengths to save us from our sin, that he would care and provide for every one of our needs as well. And prayer is the way that you and I go up and fetch those promises of God and hold them with our hands. My prayer is that we as a church would pray more, that you would pray more, that the church would be full of more prayer, and that our prayers would be more meaningful, especially as we use psalms like these as a backdrop. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now and we ask that you would uh, free us from the burden of thinking that what we need most from you is a timeline, Lord. Help us not to wrestle with how long. Um, Help us to realize that our desperation is not rooted in how long it's taken you to act. Our desperation is rooted in a disbelief and a distrust that you actually will, Father. Uh, So I pray that as we look at the life of Christ, that you would remind us um, that you will, God. You'll do all that you said that you would. Uh, Help us to take a hold of that promise as we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.